Let me draw your attention to a date. It's an important one. I think you should look it up. It is June 13th, 1789. It's a landmark date in church history. On that day, 200 years ago, the modern missionary movement began. In fact, it was birthed on that date, June 13th, 1793. There were those who boarded a boat and traveled from their native land to a different land, a country that he didn't speak the language yet, across the continent of the globe. And on that date, June 13, 1793, a missions movement began, which would eventually see the likes of Hudson Taylor taking the country of China and going there, and David Livingston and going to Africa. But it all began with a humble shoemaker turned preacher named William Carey. How many know the name William Carey? I'm glad you can have your hands up for that. William Carey boarded a Danish ship to advance the gospel. He would gather his family with him, his wife, Dorothy, and his four children, one of whom was still an infant in arms. None of them would ever go back to their English soil again. In fact, Carey would serve in India there for 41 years. He never once left the country of India for a furlough one time. And he blazed a missionary trail that thousands afterwards would follow. William Carey has been called the Martin Luther of modern missions. He has been called the father of the modern missionary movement. He has been called the reformer of missions and many such titles. Upon arriving in India, William Carey got really busy. He translated the scripture into the various languages of the Indian people. After he finished the work of translation, he began a publishing house to be able to print those Bibles that were now translated. He founded a college. He organized several other Bible schools to train and teach people about ministry. He was instrumental in training hundreds of Indian evangelists who would help him proclaim the gospel of Christ across that land. He planted numerous churches there in India, and he began to see torches of the gospel expound all across that great country all because in June 13th, 1793, he decided to get on a boat. But years earlier, before he got on that boat, he went to his mission board there housed within his church. He went to his pastor and asked and told his pastor, I'm interested in missions. And his pastor gave him a now famous response. Here's what his pastor said, quote, Young man, when God chooses to save the heathen of India... He will do so without your help. Fortunately, William Carey did not listen to that advice. He believed something that you need to believe. He believed there is no statute of limitations on the Great Commission. He believed when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, that included him. That must be taken very important. Missions and the gospel message is never an option for the church. It is a divine mandate handed down to us by the sovereign head of our church. It was Jesus who said, go and make disciples. It was Jesus who said, go into all the world. It was Jesus who said, repentance must be preached. And thus we have no other option than to take the message. We must go ourselves. We must pray for those who go. The Great Commission is our manifesto, if you will. It is our marching orders from headquarters. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at Romans 10. I want to read 
verses 13 through 17, a missions mandate passage that William Carey believed we need to know. Here's what he says in Romans 10, beginning in verse 13 of our Bibles. It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I didn't pick the songs together this morning, but I might as well have. There you have it, right there in verse 13. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now in these verses, the Apostle Paul is talking about our mandate to take the gospel message to others. He's talking about evangelism. And before we get into the outline of this, I want you to note the scope of how large this mandate is. I didn't read the verse, but look back in verse 18. It says in verse 18 that this mandate is expounded to the ends of the world. This section then that unfolds. Paul now, almost like a great orator, and he was one, a great writer, a great debater, expounds in an airtight logical sequence, asking some questions, each one expounding upon the next. Like a game of dominoes, if you have to hit the first one down, and then you kind of go backwards and you see each one in logical sequence, and it is airtight logic. He asks this, how can they call on Christ without first believing on Christ? He then asked, how can they believe on Christ without first hearing about Christ? And then logically, how can they hear about Christ without first having Christ preached to them? And then he says, well, then how can people preach Christ if they have not been called by Christ? In logical order, he gives to us the, the five mandates of our mission's work. The first of one is this. Number one, missions is mandated to call on Christ. There must be a calling on Christ. You see that in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what Paul does is he starts with the bottom line. He, he starts with the end of the process. To call upon the name of the Lord is an exercise of saving faith that is necessary for salvation. And notice it says, whosoever, anytime, any place, anywhere, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A call upon the name of the Lord is to cry out like a drowning man perishing, to cry out to be rescued, to cry out to be saved. And unless there be any doubt in your mind who the Lord is, the previous verses make it abundantly clear. Look at verse 9 to see who the Lord is of verse 13. In verse 9 it says that, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There is no doubt who the Lord is that you are to call on. This is Jesus Christ. 
This is the member of the Godhead. This is the one crucified for sinners. This is the one buried and risen again. The one ascended on high. This is the Savior you call on. And look at verse 12. There is no doubt. There is no difference between Jew and Greek, is he, he's saying in verse 12. For there is no difference between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. There, there aren't saviors for different nationalities and different continents, right? There is no distinction. The same Lord is the same Lord over all people in all places at all times. That leads us to verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name Lord. Now what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means to renounce the life you have been living independent of him. It means to repent of your sins. It means to radically change directions and become a follower of Christ. That's where missions starts. That, that is the bottom line of the evangelistic call. Gospel preaching is all about calling people to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Now, I have to ask this question before we move forward. It's a pressing question. Must Jesus be Lord to be my Savior? Must Jesus be recognized as sovereign Lord over my life to have my sins forgiven? And the answer is, indisputably, yes. This is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when he said in Acts 2, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. Salvation is always yielding of one's life, surrendering of one's life, submissions of one's life, repentance of sin. It's always that way. But there's a new and I believe heresy leaking into our churches, even our Baptist churches, that is preaching that you don't have to repent to be saved. You heard that? It's a popular teaching. It's really coming into fruition now. I hate to say it from preachers of my age, and that's terrible. But they're wrong. You do have to repent. You say, well, it's not repenting. It doesn't say repentance. Let me ask you, what does the word Lord mean if it doesn't mean repent? You can't have a Lord if you don't repent. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. If you go into and you see the flags around the world, I want you to think of them and know that whosoever in those countries can be saved. Now this is where the passage begins in verse 13. It's the bottom line. It begins if you will, with the conclusion in mind. It begins with sinners around the world calling upon the name of the Lord. But in order to call upon the Lord in verse 13, something else must precede that. So number one, you must call on the name of the Lord, but number two, the missions is mandated to comprehend Christ. This never happens in a vacuum. Nobody is sitting in the middle of a dark continent when suddenly, out of nowhere, they just call on the name of the Lord. Such is impossible. And so he says in verse 14, How then shall they call on the name of the Lord in whom they have not believed? And what Paul does is he takes one step back. This must precede the call. 
Verse 14, put in the form of a rhetorical question. And the question is so blatantly obvious that Paul, the master teacher, doesn't even answer his own question. How can they call on one they haven't believed? Obviously, no one will ever call on someone they haven't believed in. Now notice the wording. How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And this word believed is to be distinguished from the term saving faith. Saving faith is found in verse 13, call on the name of the Lord. But believe here means no. This is a reference to having an intellectual understanding and knowledge of the truth. Sometimes you hear people say, well, they have it in their head, but they don't have it in their heart. And I guess I understand what they're saying, but this verse is saying that Paul is teaching that believing on Jesus begins actually with an intellectual, cognitive knowledge of the truth. God does not bypass the central processing units which reside between your ears, your brain, in order to lead you to Christ. And so when you preach, a clear message has to be presented. The cross must be shared. The resurrection must be taught. The terms of the resurrection must be taught. All of that must be shared to be saved. Can someone come to Christ without knowing who Christ is? The answer, obviously no. Look again in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, how can they call on Christ if they don't know who he is? How can you ask Jesus to save you unless you first know he is your savior? No, no one can call upon the Lord unless they first know about Christ, buried, risen, and saving. Ever heard, like, there, there's, I've seen them, even gospel tracts that just simply say, well, Jesus loves you and you should smile about it. Is that gonna save you? Not that by itself, it won't. There has to be a clear understanding. And I think this underscores the imperative of preaching, does it not? I'll tell you what kills missions. What kills missions and evangelism is to tell people someone on earth can be saved without hearing about Jesus. That will kill evangelism in a church. If you tell people, well, a missionary doesn't have to go, then why would they go? But if you tell people what Paul says, that people won't get saved unless they hear about a Savior, now people are compelled to go. Therefore, if a lost would be saved, we must go to the lost. We must do the work of evangelism. So what Paul does is he takes a step back. But now, thirdly, he takes another step back. Let's go back one more step. Because for in order to call, you have to comprehend. But just as believing is logically prior to calling, so hearing is logically prior to believing. And so he says, number one, you need to call. And number two, you need to comprehend. But number three, you need to catch Christ. Look at verse 14. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Another rhetorical question so blatantly obvious, Paul doesn't give the answer. How can they believe or know of Christ if they've never heard about Christ? The answer, they cannot believe in him if they have not heard about him. 
And notice the word in the middle of this verse, believe in him of whom they have not heard. And that word whom is synonymous with the hymn of the previous word. This hymn speaks of Christ. This whom also speaks of Christ. Christ is the speaker. And what Paul is saying is that they must hear Christ in two ways. They, they must hear the silent voice of Christ, the silent but powerful voice of Christ through his word. Colossians 3 verse 16 identifies the written word of God as the word of Christ. Colossians 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. No one will ever be saved without the word of Christ. I'm not telling you to hear voices, right? People walk around saying, well, God told me, and I heard this, and I saw this dream. And I just want to say, well, maybe you ate Little Caesar's pizza the night before, and you had a weird dream. I'm not talking about weird dreams. I'm talking about actually something much louder than that. It is Christ speaking through the word. It is Christ himself who stands behind the word of God. When the book is read and the message is brought, it is Christ himself who is speaking. And to the extent that the communicator rightly represents the word of God, that communicator is representing Christ himself. You see, when, when a pastor gets into the pulpit or an evangelist climbs into the pulpit and preaches and you hear that word, you don't, if that communicator is preaching rightly, you don't answer to that preacher. You answer to Christ. The book is opened. You aren't dealing with him, you're dealing with God. I, I, I worked in a, an evangelism in, a, in an Indianapolis inner city community and one of the guys that used to get ready to introduce the preachers, he would always tell the teenagers, now we're about to do something special. I want you to know something. This is not your time. This is not my time. This is God's time. And then he would preach. As I step into the pulpit, there are, there are in the real way two people here. As I open this book, I pray that it is one voice you hear, God's. I pray it is one wisdom proclaimed, Christ's. It is one glory shed abroad, the Son of God. That's what our text is saying. This goes simply beyond hearing the message. It is to hear the author of the message. But they must also hear the powerful voice of God through his spirit. They are drawn. They have heard something. John 10 verse 1 puts it this way. Verily, verily, I say unto you. And you know, when Jesus says verily, verily, you pay attention to the verily, verilies. This is not just a nugget of truth for your devotions this morning. This is a powerful truth. This is a Mount Everest of truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs in another way, the same is a thief and a robber. Jesus is referring to false prophets who bring this man-centered message that manipulates people and they come without meeting messianic requirements. And he says, but he that entereth the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth and the sheep do something. They hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, he leadeth them out, he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. Did you catch that? It's a powerful truth. The text says, and other sheep I have, which are not of the fold, them also I bring, and they shall hear my voice. 
What he's saying is this message goes beyond the Jewish fold. It extends to the Gentiles. It extends to the corners of the world. To hear the voice is to hear the call of the Spirit. I want you to know that no one will ever come to Christ lest they hear the voice of the shepherd. My friend, what an encouragement it is to know that God has sheep around the world. And whenever we send missionaries, there are sheep ready and waiting to hear the voice of that shepherd. As I turn back, attention back to Romans 10, I must ask, have you heard the voice of the shepherd? I don't mean, have you heard mom share the gospel? I don't mean, have you heard the Sunday school teacher share the gospel? I'm talking about, have you heard the voice of the shepherd saying you? I call you. Matthew, come follow me. Zacchaeus, you come down. Lazarus, come forth. But there is something that yet precedes hearing Christ. That there is a fourth necessity of evangelism. We call on Christ. We comprehend Christ. We catch or hear Christ. But there has to be something done in order to hear that message. Number four, missions is mandated to cry out for Christ. There must be a preaching of Christ Christ must be proclaimed. If, if someone is to hear Christ, they must hear Christ preached. Look at the end of verse 14. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Yet another rhetorical question with an obvious answer. How can they hear without it preached to them? Answer, no one will ever hear the voice of the shepherd without first hearing the voice of the preacher who brings the word of the shepherd. God does not act independent of his word. You, you can look at the sky, the birds, the trees, the mountains, and you can come to the conclusion that there must be a powerful creator. But you will never know God in creation apart from his word preached to you. By the way, friends, this logic is so airtight that you cannot be picked apart. The conclusion is clear. No one will ever call on Christ. No one will ever know Christ. No one will ever hear Christ unless a preacher preaches Christ. Now, I believe this message is taken by all types of messengers. Preachers, evangelists, teachers, parents, counselors, Bible leaders. But at the forefront of this list are those who will take this message by appointment as preachers. How shall they hear without a preacher? And this word preacher is one who makes a public proclamation. It is not a whisper in a small group. It is not a conversation over a coffee club. A preacher comes from the Greek word that refers to one who stands in a public arena and lifts up his voice and summons people together and says, basically, the king saith thus. A preacher is one who lifts up his voice. Friends, did you know God had one son and he made him a preacher? How shall they hear without a preacher? Preacher is the preaching is the primary work of evangelism today. Friends, I, I, I must tell you, 
that there are fewer and fewer young men who will stand up and say, I'll be one of those preachers. It's a, it's a tragedy. I believe that God's fields are still white unto harvest. I believe God is still calling preachers to preach. I just believe there are men who are unwilling to make the sacrifice and preach. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, if God calls you to be a preacher, don't stoop to be a king. Friend, I, I, I really believe that many are called to preach, but this is the counsel that they're basically giving. Go be a preacher. If God's called you, go do that training, but make sure you have a backup plan. Friend, if you're, if you're making sure you have a backup plan, you'll never be a preacher. You either go or you don't. You're either all in or you're all out. But we need men that'll actually listen to what God's word is saying and say, yeah, I'll go. And you read about these William Careys and you read about the host of others who came after him and you go, well, where is that happening now? I'm just telling you, God didn't stop calling, we stopped listening. There is no salvation apart from the preaching proclamation of Christ. And we need men who would be willing to boldly stand forth and say, I'll do it. But again, this is a domino effect. There's a lead domino that is pushed over before any of the other four will fall. Something else has to happen. Something else has to happen. And if this one last thing happens, there will be a sequential order of the other four we've already looked at. Before anybody can do any of the other things we just looked at, fifthly and finally, missions is mandated to be called by Christ. This is so imperative. It is so critically important. Without this domino being pushed over, none of the others will fall. He says in verse 15, how shall they preach except they be sent? They must be sent. There are no self-appointed preachers. There are only God-appointed preachers. And oh, how these men need to know that it is God who called them. How can you go to India for 41 years and never go back to England? How can you bury your wife in India? How can you watch your adopted daughter go insane in India? How can you go day after day pursuing a work of bringing the light to the darkness of India when many will mock you and will reject you? I'll tell you how. Only if you know you are there by divine appointment. Only if you know that it is the head of the church who has called you. William Carey stayed faithful because he knew he was called. The preacher, the missionary, the evangelist must know he has been sent by heaven and by God to appear before men and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And hell itself cannot thwart that commission. How will they preach unless they be sent? Another rhetorical question. Answer, they won't preach unless they've been sent. So Paul continues to expound. He says in verse 15, as it is written. What Paul is doing now is he is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He is quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7. And he's referring to God-sent preachers. And here's what he says. 
How beautiful, as he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. These are the feet of those who carry the gospel of Christ. Friend, God doesn't care what you look like on the outside. God cares where your feet are going. Friend, will your feet move from point A to point B? God is still calling, but are you listening? There is no statute of limitations on the Great Commission. The purpose of evangelism is very clear. It is not to use human persuasion and clever devices. It is not to manipulate confessions of faith. We could do those things and we might get a bigger crowd, quite frankly. We can call ourselves a church and just not use the Bible and have more people come, but we won't be doing this. It is our purpose to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ which the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and salvation to those who hear. God-centered evangelism is about sending out messengers into the highways and byways to declare the truth that Christ has triumphed at the cross and over the grave, and we must trust him for the results. So then we conclude. Faith, verse 17, comes, cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I pray that God will work in your hearts to see the value of heroes with beautiful feet who leave the comfortable to go to places that are uncomfortable. In 1792, it was the year before William Carey left England to India never to return, William Carey wrote a small book. Here was the title of his book. An inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. And yes, that is the whole title for his book. I was asked, what is the title of my message tonight? I just said it's the mandate for missions. I could have had a really long title and been with William Carey. I encourage you to look it up, by the way. It is now out of print, so it's available for free online. But boiled down, this signature book on missions says just four basic things. What do we do? What must we do? Number one, William Carey says we must pray. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest, but take it a step further. Pray that those workers would listen. How we must be on our knees regularly saying, God, do a work. Start it right here. Prior to being in Taylor, South Carolina, I was on the space coast of Florida in a church that had seen a good heyday. Things had struggled greatly. By the time we got there, it was a difficult thing. There were times in that first year I thought, I, I don't know if we will be able to sustain a missions budget at all. I don't know if we'll be able to sustain a full-time pastor. Things were rough. But I knew God answers prayer. So we started what I learned from my father, and that was a prayer hour at 5 o'clock every Sunday. And every Sunday we would pray for various requests. People would submit, but we always started with two. 
And if people were physically able, we would get down on our knees and literally start with two prayer requests every Sunday. Number one, God, start a revival and start it here with us. And number two, God, send out missionaries and preachers and send them out from us. And our purpose was saying, friends, there are many other churches out there, but for right now, we are interested in how we can reach our community. I want to tell you, God answered that prayer. Our church saw tremendous growth, 50% almost of our membership joined in the last three years. We praise the Lord for that. God can still do that through prayer. But number two, William Carey says, not only do we pray, but we plan. William Carey formed the first missionary society in existence, at least in modern missions. William Carey took the first missionary offering in modern missions for the purpose of sending gospel messengers. Another pastor in England named Andrew Fuller was a friend of William Carey's, and here's what he said. He said to William, By the grace of God, it is God's will for me to stay and for you, William, to go. But if you go down into the well, I will hold the rope for you. And the two planned and saw God bless their plan. I am convinced that many churches don't see God work in their midst because they're waiting for God to move and they're not moving. God does not push parked cars. He helps steer moving vehicles. Friend, I, I, you, will, you say, well, I, want, I think God's going to use me in this way. Great, start moving. And maybe God will say, yeah, you're going to be like I had. You're going to be in Florida. We had built our house seven months earlier. We're going to live there the rest of my life. And seven months later, here I'm in South Carolina. Friend, I, I'm just going to go. I, I, don't, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm going I'm moving. If you're waiting for a bolt of lightning to come through this auditorium right now to show you exactly and the hand of God to come down and and write on the wall like he did for Daniel, I'm telling you, you're waiting for something you're going to wait a long time for. Move. Proverbs says, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. What's the implication? The implication is you're in God's hand, but you better prepare your horse. You get working. You plan. Number three, you give, William Carey says. Every Christian has something to offer. Every Christian should give what they can for the cause of evangelism. For many, they have the opportunity to give financially that others may be unencumbered in the work of evangelism. Praise the Lord for that. Others can give of their time. Others can give of themselves. You can give. In his book, William Carey expounds upon ways that you can give, and he gives literal illustrations of the practicality of how you can use your life to give all that you can for the glory of God. And his application is, don't stop giving until you've wrung yourself out. By the way, not only did he teach that, he lived that. And number four, William Carey says, go. Carey himself volunteered to go to India in order that the gospel might go forward, and it required the next 41 years of his life until he graduated to glory. For many of us, it may be for his will for you to stay and hold the rope so that the church may continue to be a strong sending station. 
But perhaps God is pushing you and you are hearing the voice calling, will you answer his call? There is no more noble thing you can do with your life than to take your life and preach the gospel to other countries. Maybe you're sitting here and say, but that would require me to not have Christmas with family sometimes. Yep. I would rather celebrate the worship of those converted than to live comfortably in this country forever. How about you? May we all affirm the beautiful work of God calling those to serve him. It is so regal. It is so heavenly. It is so glorious. It is a part of the heart of God and it must be a part of our hearts as well. And may we first search our hearts to say, God, maybe it's me. Maybe you want me there. May we reaffirm, if we have already said, yeah, I will be that person. May we reaffirm again and say, God, I look at your word and I understand the domino effect there. And you have called me and I know I'm moving. I don't know where I'll be in 20 years, but I want to be in your will in 20 years. Because the gospel commission has no statute of limitations. And the sun rose this morning because God's still not done his work yet. Would you join in that work? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity it is even to expand upon a passage that so clearly indicates the beautiful feet of those who will go. Lord, we can look at examples like William Carey and and commend him as a, as a pioneer hero in missions movements, but he's not the only one. Even Paul, who wrote this, is a hero who gave so much. But Lord, there may be others in this room who re- need to recognize God is calling them to have beautiful feet, like this passage says. May they be willing to go. May they be willing to plan. May they have a, an extra gusto in them, even in a midterm time, to recognize that what they're doing right now is, is valuable for eternity because they are planning to go. Lord, may they work hard. There are others, Lord, that maybe have already recognized that call, and today could be a time to reaffirm, to energize up on what God is calling them to do. Others still, God's been working on for a while, and they know God's calling them somewhere, but they've been resistant to that calling Lord, may today they, they just, uh, just submit to the will of God in their lives. May we together as a ministry arms wrap our arms around them and encourage them to follow the Lord's will. 